This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Christ-centered preaching is trying to identify how the whole of Scripture is a redemptive message that culminates in Christ. This is Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher from PreachingToday.com, and I am here today with my guest host, who is the author of a book called Christ-Centered Preaching. And I love that title. I think every preacher would say, every all preachers would say they want to do that, but what does that mean, and how do you do that? And why don't we do that? Well, I'm here today with the author of that book, uh, Brian Chapel, and Brian is the administrative coordinator of the PCA. And uh, but before that, he was also a, a pastor for decades and a seminary professor. He's the pastor emeritus and uh, also the author of Christ Center Preaching in its third edition and translated into a couple dozen languages. And so. Uh, Brian, it's a real treat and a privilege to have you with us today. Thank you, Matt. I'm glad to be with you. I, I read the things you write, and I love the way you encourage pastors, and, and I love being encouraged. So thank you for the work you do. <laughs> well, thank, that's an encouragement to me. So, Brian, you know, we always like to start with something uh, more personal before we get into the nitty-gritty. You've been preaching for how many years now? You know, you wrote me that question. I had to actually calculate, so it scared me. It's 45. So 45. Wow. Okay. You started when you were six years old, right? That's right. There you go. And I know you're just, you're a reader, you're a thinker, you love engaging in ideas. So I know that this would be something on your heart and mind when I ask you, how do you want to grow as a preacher? Well, I was forced to think about that by your question. I recognize, you know, when you're in those early decades of preaching, you're learning. And for me, the, the goal was always to teach and to reach. And I think all of us, when we come out of our early preaching training, we're better at teaching than reaching, right? Every sermon is a a commentary essay of some sort. And then we learn to start reaching into people's hearts and lives. And I think you reach another stage of ministry where you're building, probably your responsibilities grow. So you're reaching, but you're also learning to restore people. Hmm. In some ways, you're probably learning to multiply your ministry into other people's lives or maybe in institutions. And so I think you go from learning to preach to building on those skills. And then you reach a stage, which I probably am, at which I recognize people more call upon me for that inspiring aspect. Hmm. Still trying to reach. I'm still trying to restore. But I, I think I am trying to unite in common cause. I mean, that's the job I have now. Hmm. Right. Or of my years as a senior pastor, I recognize I'm trying to, to recognize that what I'm called to do is more and more to preach to the mind but also to the heart in such a way that people are not just thinking about the truths of Scripture, they're actually feeling its impact on their lives. I think when we're younger, we tend to operate more at the mind level. And the more you preach, the more you recognize people pretty much know what they're supposed to think. And they might be doing it, but they, they kind of have a sense of what they ought to be doing. They're not doing it. And so you think, how do I get to their hearts? And I think 
that's more where I am these days. How do I move from think to feel? That may not be the right word, but it's kind of what I feel. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I remember the last preaching conference I went to before COVID hit. I can't even remember where we were, Brian, but you were speaking and you talked about fighting for the hearts of your people in your preaching, you know, that there's a battle going on and we have to win their hearts. And Anyway, I, I wrote down the exact quote, and I've thought about it often. I just really appreciate that. So I know exactly what you're talking about. So you wrote this book on Christ-centered preaching. You're the guy, man. You're the expert on this. So um, you're probably too humble with that, but you, you are. And so let's just start with a definition. Everybody likes to think, of course, I center on Jesus. But to you, what is Christ-centered preaching? What does that mean? <laughs> it's not doing what I did for the first five to seven years of my ministry. It's, it's not like me. Because basically what I did was kind of hit people over the head with the Bible. I never would have thought of myself doing that. But I just told them to straighten up, fly right, and do better. Until that message itself crushed me. And I recognize if Christ doesn't make a difference in how I live, I can't fly straight enough or shape up enough for a holy God. And that put me on a search. Other people have already blazed the path. And I, I summarized a lot of what they've said. But Christ-centered preaching is trying to identify how the whole of Scripture is a redemptive message that culminates in Christ. Sometimes a book title can get you in trouble, Christ-centered preaching. People think, oh, you're going to try to make me, make Jesus magically appear in every verse of the Bible. That I'm going to do some kind of Scripture twisting that I don't feel comfortable doing. And, and I'm glad people feel that. You know, it's not right to make Jesus try to mag magically appear or shoehorn him in where he is not. Instead, what we're doing is we're showing how the grace of God, and just a simple way of saying that, how God provides for people who cannot provide for themselves, hmm. how the grace of God moves through the scripture and culminates in the work of Christ. That's not trying to make Jesus magically appear. It's saying, how is God showing you, you are not your redeemer? I mean, from Genesis 3.15 forward, God is saying, you are not your redeemer, but I'm going to send one. And he's going to provide what you cannot provide for yourself. So God is building that message of grace until it culminates in Christ. So that's not making Jesus magically appear where he's not or shoehorning him into the Old Testament where he is not. It is saying, what is the purpose of what leads to Christ? And how does Christ enable us to serve him afterwards? So it's that culminating grace that we want to make sure we're dealing with in the work you do, you know. There are lots of objections, which I think are often misunderstandings. Yeah. People really do think, you're going to make me take out my magic wand or my Jesus has how many letters in it? And this word has how many letters in it? And that means it's about Jesus. No, I'm not. That's not what we're doing. We're not allegorical. Because we talk about grace, we're not antinomian. We're not telling people there's nothing God expects of you. We are saying instead... God has revealed his son because you're not your redeemer. And once you know him, you can actually live for him. But it's his enabling that you need to discern. So you've answered a question a little further down, which is what are some of the weaknesses of this approach? Or And, and, I, and I added erroneously understandings of this approach. And you've listed some of them. It's antinomian. You know, it doesn't focus on obedience. It's bad exegesis. It doesn't exegete the text right in front of you. 
Yeah, so those are a couple of the big ones. You want to say anything a little bit more about that? No, I, I think I just want people to keep listening for a little bit, Matt. So, <laughs> so yeah, get some of the, oh, he, he doesn't really believe what I thought he believed. Yeah. And, and so now I think we'll still get to those questions, but I'm, I'm, uh, it's just important for me to say, uh, you know, what was the, the Mark Twain, you know, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Sometimes yes. r- rumors of how you get Jesus into every verse have been greatly exaggerated. As I said, maybe it's my own fault for a title that wasn't precise enough. But the grace of God culminating in Christ is a little big for a title. (laughs) Yes. But to say the whole Bible is leading us to understand who Jesus is because you are not your redeemer is an important place to start. I agree. So you have this really important uh, concept called the fallen condition focus. Tell us what that means and how that fits into this Christ-centered preaching approach. So we live in a fallen world, right? So from Genesis 3 forward, the world is fallen and we are fallen creatures. The Bible, I'm making the case for, because I think the Bible is saying it from that point forward, has its own theme established. From that point, Genesis 3.15 forward, God is saying, you're a mess, Hmm. but I'm going to fix the mess with the Messiah. And that is the unfolding message that is coming. So as we look at scripture from that lens, as it were, and it's not my lens, it's the one that Moses himself said, what's the rest of this about? This is how God is going to be sending away to redeem humanity. We need to identify as we're looking at individual texts, what's the human dilemma that requires a divine solution? The fallen condition is the human dilemma. And then we say, what's the divine solution? So we're looking at texts and we're saying, what's wrong here? that God can make right, not what I can make right. Now, that would turn the gospel on its head. What's wrong here that I can fix? No, what's wrong here that God must fix? And how do I live in response to that? And it's just the basic understanding. The Bible is not a self-help book. The Bible is a God-help book. So as I read the text, I'm looking, I'm saying, what's the human dilemma here? that God is helping his people out of or saw, you know, Dale Carnegie, that great Christian saint. No, I'm not saying that. But Uh Dale Carnegie, when he taught public speaking, said, what's the way to make people listen to you? Very first step, put a man in a hole. If you put a man in a hole, what's his question? How do I get out of the hole? What's the fallen condition? What is the human hole that we are in because of sin and corruption in this world. How is this text identifying some aspect of that hole? And once I've seen the hole, my question is, how does God get me out? And then how do I respond to the instruction that he gives for my help? But always, God is the solution. And it's his instruction, his help that I am seeking for getting out of the hole. Yeah, that's great, Brian. So, The word grace keeps showing up in your writing a lot. I did a word search on, go on Amazon, did a word search for the word grace in your book. And it, I can't remember the exact number, but it's, it's, it comes up a lot. And so how does this shape and drive your preaching? And thank you, Matt. I mean, it's discerning and helpful because what it's saying is Christ-centered preaching, if you're trying to make Jesus magically appear in every verse, you're going to be a mess, and you're going to mess up the word. But if what you're saying is, how am I seeing in this text the way that God is providing for people 
who cannot provide for themselves, which I know is colloquial for what grace is, but that's basically what it is. How is God providing for people who cannot fix themselves? If I'm looking for that, then that's the message that's unfolding in the scriptures. When God provides food for a running away prophet, when he provides strength for the weak, when he provides rest for the weary, when he provides victory for the few, what is God doing in all those dimensions? He's not saying, oh, there's Jesus. No, that's not it. What he is saying is, I'm reminding you, I am your helper. I am your refuge. There is no rescue without me. And that's why you're being taught to turn to me for the ultimate redeemer and rescuer, who is Jesus. So grace is the unfolding of the work of Christ that culminates in him, no matter where you are in the Bible. So grace is not just God's provision. I usually think people put that in the interpretive aspect of their preaching. He's, he's how God is the, he's the culmination of God's provision. But then we stop there. And I find for so many young preachers, they think they've got the interpretation right. They're done. And I, I try to remind them, no, listen, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. He's not just provision. He is power. Hmm. And so grace is necessary, not just because it is the mark of God's provision, because it is the enabling power of the Christian life. So it stands on both sides of the cross. It's the grace that culminates in him, but it's also the grace from him that enables our walk. You're right. So grace crops up a lot because it is both provision and power. And for that reason, we need it on both sides of the cross. Yeah, makes sense. We didn't talk about this, but let's just take a really quick case study. You don't have to outline a whole sermon, but let, let's say James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, et cetera, et cetera. That, let's just say you're preaching on verses 2 through 4. It doesn't mention Jesus, you know. It's just basically how to handle trials, okay? So, so you obviously pick the easiest book in the Bible that Luther thought was that strawy book that had no gospel in it. So thank you for picking that one, Matt. Yeah. But as you might guess, I have been asked that question maybe a time or two before. And I bet you preached on that passage, you know, so. <laughs> so, so where does the passage go? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Yeah, there's trial. Of course, James is writing to a dispersed people who are in great trial. And how do you handle difficulty and how do you handle pride and arrogance and fear and all the things that he's going to deal with in that New Testament book of Proverbs, which is seeking the wisdom we need to handle those trials? Well, what does he say right from the beginning? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him just ask himself and figure it out and go into your inner self. And you, no, he yes. doesn't say any of that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who provides liberally and without reproach. Where are the answers? You are not your redeemer. God is not looking to you to fix the problem. He's saying, you look to me. I am the provider. And I will provide liberally what you need. And without reproach, you can trust me to be forgiving and understanding. And I would say again, does it mention Jesus? Well, not there. But how do I know that God's promise of his grace to grant liberally what I need and to do it without reproach for the fact that I have need? How do I know that's true? Well, James, after all, is the brother of who? Of Jesus. Yeah. And, and, and James is going to be directing us to act out of the grace that he has perceived in the reality of Jesus. So I'm not going to say here he's talking about Jesus, really. No, I don't think he is. But he's speaking out of the context 
of an understanding of what Christ has provided to give us an understanding of what God means when he says, I will provide liberally, generously, and without blaming you for needing me. And that's the grace whose culminating truth and enabling power, by the way, is the work of Christ. Yeah, that makes sense. So you cannot get away from that overarching narratives of the whole Bible of God's grace. You cannot. And the reason we need that, I mean, why, why has grace become important? Again, it's not just provision. It is our power. I mean, why, why do we need something other than ourselves? We've been told the effect of the power. We are no longer slaves, right? I can't go to God for all the, you know, it's not antinomian. I can't go to God and say, well, I just can't help it. Well, that, that's not true. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And I can't say, well, God does not have requirements. No, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. But what do we understand? How can I keep God's commands? Well, I recognize first the gospel is true. I am not a slave. Hmm. I even go to seminaries at times. And I say, my professor said that you're antinomian, <laughs> huh. that you and Tim Keller and others say, well, you know, this is what God requires, but you really can't do it. So you need, and I say, you know, I say the opposite. You really can do it. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You are no longer a slave. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you, Romans 6. The question is not whether you can help it or not. That's been answered in the gospel. You can help it. So why don't you help it? Well, James, you were just quoting from, answers that question. You know, what causes us to sin? Let no man say when he sins that he's tempted of God. God cannot be tempted and he tempts no man. We're tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires and lusts. We follow sin, not because we're slaves. What causes us to sin is our love for it. Yeah. If you understand that, I mean, just ask yourself the question. If the sin had, did not attract me, it would have no power over me. Absolutely none. So what is going to displace love for sin in the gospel? What displaces love for sin? Well, we know the answer to that. It is a greater love. It is a surpassing love. And, and what causes us to love Christ? What does? We love because he first loved us. And that is the message of grace. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Now, you can you look at that as Jesus wagging his finger at you. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Mm. Or you can take it as a plain statement of fact. If you love Jesus... Pleasing and honoring him will be your greatest desire. Ah. Your affections will change. And what will cause those affections to change? It is understanding, John told us, how great is his love for us. So grace is not just a fact on the page of God's provision. It is ultimately the enabling motivation to act on what we already know to do. And by the way, already have the power to do. So you are no longer a slave. So why do I insist on slavery. Well, I don't if I love Jesus and seek to honor him with the power he has already granted. That's not antinomianism. It's quite the opposite. It is being motivated and enabled by the grace of God to do what he requires to be done. And I know you've also, you write a lot on application, and I really appreciate your stuff on application. So give us, um, I want to talk about the what, the why, and the how of application. So first, the what. Give us a just a short definition. What is application to you? Uh, colloquially, the personal consequence of a biblical truth. 
So if we're being a little more technical, you know, what do the theologians say? There's a difference between meaning and significance. So if I just tell you the Greek background and all that, that's good meaning. But preachers almost always start by giving meaning and they leave off when it comes to significance. Uh. The significance for your life. Application is really saying, what's the personal significance for you of what I just said? Because here's the sad truth. If you know meaning, but not significance, you really do not know what it's saying. If we tell our people, here's all the meaning, and they don't know what's significance, they don't really know the text. And so application is making sure they don't only know meaning, but they know the significance for their lives as well. Yeah. Why does application matter? Maybe I think you've already answered that, but. Well, uh, yeah, and you could just go, I mean, if you would, I'm sad to say, man, I mean, if you just look across our culture, those who identify themselves as Bible-believing Christians, they have a general idea of what the Bible requires. They have a sense of morality. and yeah. But every survey we do of our own people says they live little different from the culture. Mm, yeah. They know meaning. They don't know significance. Or if they know significance, I'll go back to their hearts are not compelled to act upon it. So application is just dealing with the reality. You know, every great writer on preaching, you go from um, Calvin, Broadus, Spurgeon, whoever it is, Spurgeon said, where the application begins, the sermon begins. Now, he, mm. he didn't mean that there wasn't anything important before that, but he meant if people will know what to do with this, why did we just say anything? Yeah. If we're just leaving them hanging, what was the purpose? So Broadus, as you know, said, you know, that primary preacher on preaching, teacher on preaching the last century, Broadus said, application is the end of the sermon. It's the purpose. It's the goal of the sermon. Yeah. Even Jay Adams says it's the telos, right? It's it's the purpose you're driving at. So why is it important? Because if people don't know significance, they don't really know what you just said. Yeah. I immediately brought to mind, you know, this racial reckoning we're having in our country, you know, and just the lack of the huge disconnect between the way our black and Latino brothers and sisters have been treated. And uh, it just, it's a profound lack of application, right? I mean, it's just like this, we don't understand the significance of what it means to love our brothers, right? That's right. And I think you cannot, as you just did, you almost cannot talk about application biblically without using that word significance. Yeah. What's the significance of saying that this is my brother made in the image of God? What is the significance of saying, love your enemy? Yeah. What is the significance of saying, love your neighbor as yourself? You know, I, you know, to mouth the words and to know what the Greek meanings are behind particular verbs and nouns is one thing, but it's quite another thing to say, what is the significance of that in my life today? Or the other word, what's the personal consequence of that truth for me today? Yeah. And that's because this alternative community, this alternative society that Christians are supposed to be living comes as they understand the application of the grace of God to their lives. Let's talk about the how of application. How, how does that look in your approach to preaching? When I start talking to my students or those that I teach about application, I will say it is about not just meaning, but significance. How do you get there? Four questions to answer. Application is not just what to do. Go thou and do likewise. Mm. That's a start, but it's also not just what to do, but where. You just did it when you said, how are we dealing with racial reckoning in our society? You're saying, 
not just what does this mean about somebody else mm -hmm. made in the image of God, yeah. where does it have meaning in your life? That's that situational specifics that are required for good preaching. But then the lat latter questions, which sadly fewer preachers get to, mm. why should I do what you just said, ah. which has to be out of love for God? Mm. Again, why do we love him? Because he first loved us. There is grace coming into the passage. There is grace coming into the context. I'm not saying every text mentions grace, but it is in the context. So we identify the grace in the context, which is why I respond to God. And then how do I enable people to respond to God? What's their enabling power? It's not just going to more church meetings, not just praying longer, not just reading more. I mean, those are all important. But what enables me to serve God is having a greater love for him than all the loves of the world. So my ambition, my income, my bank account, my status in the society, all of that I would consider as what I ought to be loving is preempted by that surpassing love for God. And what prompts that in me is his love for me, which is why grace has to be essential to the equation of valid application. Yeah, makes sense. It's not getting you off the hook. It's actually compelling your heart, right? It was the Apostle Paul. The love of God compels me, constrains me, because there's, I mean, I mean, be silly, but there's no greater power. What drives the mother back into the burning building, what drives her back into the burning is her love for another. And it is the most compelling of human motivations. So we center on the grace of God. I'm not saying there are no other things to say, but we understand that out of the heart are the issues of life. So we go after the heart. And we do that by showing people how God has loved them. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So you've written in your book, Christ-Centered Preaching. This is one of my favorite quotes. It's near the beginning of the book. You say, uh, talking to preachers, you must know grace to preach it. No matter how great your skill or accolades as a preacher, you are unlikely to lead others closer to God if your heart does not reflect the continuing work of the Savior in your life. Over your 45-plus and ongoing, even today, ministry of preaching, what have you learned about keeping the grace of Jesus alive and warm in your own life? You know, there, there are basic aspects of anybody's walk with God that I, I try to follow, Matt. I try to fill myself with Scripture. To this day, in my morning exercise, it used to be jogging. Now it's walking. <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> I listen, I listen to scripture. That's what I do. I've done it for decades. And, yeah. I, you know, it's listening to scripture. And I do that. So I seek to fill myself with scripture. I do seek obedience to obey the scriptures that I'm learning. But honestly, I believe I am most filled with love for Christ and appreciate his grace by teaching it to other people. Hmm. That's the old thing. The, the person who teaches learns the most. Yes. And that I'm assuming that means the Lord knows that I need it the most. But I think in, in doing what I do with you right now, I thrill to do it. I love to do it because I know it's changing me even as I'm teaching other people, helping people say, you want to teach other people the Bible? That's wonderful. But in my early years of ministry, I thought preaching was getting people to do what they don't want to do. And that's a horrible job. You know, you just beat people and you beat yourself. But I don't believe that anymore. I believe my job now is to enable people to love their Savior more. And that is a wonderful job. That's a great job. And I thrill to do it, and I love to do it, but I know even as I'm doing it, it's changing me. 
I'm reminding myself, oh, look, look how great is my Savior. How wondrous is his grace. And it, it changes me by helping others understand. I have one more question. We didn't, we didn't plan on this, but it just it came to me. So if you would take a stab at something off the cuff, I know your job has been affected by COVID. And I just wonder if there's any word of encouragement you would give to preachers out there and just all the stuff we're going through in COVID and in our nation and uh, our democracy, global events, and just any word of encouragement you'd give to preachers in this season. Thank you, Matt. I'm going to be very serious for a moment. The ultimate word is find someone to encourage, but why is that? Mm. You know, I'm a denominational leader now, this strange phase of life, but I know, and virtually everybody who's studying pastors in our culture today says they are under greater pressure than they have ever been under in their ministries. It's not because they're doing all the visitation, everything. it's because you can make no decision in the average church in which a third to a half of the people are not now mad at whether you wow. wear a mask or don't wear a mask, whether you have nursery, don't have nursery, whether you have outdoor or indoor service, whether you meet or don't meet, whether you're virtual or not virtual. What COVID has required puts every pastor in somebody's target. And you cannot make decisions without being attacked. And those who study us say as many as two of every five pastors at the end of COVID will be leaving the ministry. The young end who said, this is not what I wanted to live my life for. And the older saying, I'm done. I'm just done. I've given myself and look at the attack I'm under. So those who are most likely to leave the ministry are those who are most pastoral. That's a sadness, but that's the reality. So if you're feeling this press, number one, you're not alone. Hmm. You didn't cause this and you're not making mistakes because some people are mad at you. There, There is just no corner. You can get away from it right now. So Be strong and courageous. The Lord is with you. Walk with him. Be with him. And because you need encouragement, encourage somebody. In somebody, find to encourage. Because just as grace that I teach builds me up, when you encourage others, it will help you. It will help you. So find someone to encourage. Just don't lick your wounds. And in doing that, I think you'll be strengthened for what is still a long haul for a lot of pastors. Yeah. That is great advice. Thanks, Brian. Well, Brian, it is, it's been a privilege and a pleasure talking to you. I wish we could talk more often, but God's blessing on you and your new role and your new place in Atlanta, you and your family. Thanks again so much for being with us. Thank you, Matt. I love your work. Thanks for doing it. Thanks. And remember, preachers, these words, you must know grace to preach it. So let the grace of Jesus be alive and warm in your hearts. Again, this is Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher. Thanks for joining us for this episode. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.